Let's uh, turn to read, as we did last Lord's Day evening, uh, the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, page 1187. We'll read the first chapter. Might be just slightly further on from there as well, but we'll certainly read the first chapter. 1 Thessalonians from the beginning. As is common in all the letters of the New Testament, it begins with the names of the, uh, the senders of the letter in this case. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I'll just read the first two verses of chapter 2 as well. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I want tonight to... Uh, continue or maybe finish what we started last Sunday evening when we were asking the question, what does real, authentic, living Christianity look like? And we saw last week the way in which the believers in Thessalonica had received the gospel. And the gospel had come to them, we saw this in chapter 1 and verse 5, not only in word, 
but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It wasn't only with words, but the gospel is with words. The gospel is a message. The gospel is information. The gospel is communication. The gospel is something that our minds receive and believe and a body of truth that we, we latch on to, isn't it? The gospel came with power. A power that may indeed have been seen in the miracles that were worked through Paul and his companions. But more than that was a power at work in the innermost beings of those who heard the message that they were changed. And it was with the Holy Spirit because it was evident that this was no mere human message. This was no human persuasion. This was no uh, advertising or salesman doing his pitch. It was far more than that. It was God the Holy Spirit with heavenly authority and power doing a work unmistakably that people could recognize. God was speaking to them. And because of that, therefore, it was with deep conviction, full conviction we read here in verse 5. What does that mean? It means that those who listened had a solid, substantial certainty that this is the real thing. What is the real thing? Well, nothing and no one other than Jesus Christ himself. Yes, he is Lord. He is Savior. This is the message. He is eternal life. Our souls are longing to receive him, and we now know him, and we are convinced and convicted that he is Lord and Savior. Now, that's where we were last week, and we could carry on in that vein even tonight, but I want to go a little further tonight and ask the question, what were the lasting effects on that church in Thessalonica? And what should be the effects on churches today where the same timeless gospel of Jesus is preached? I have two points. There may be time only for one, but we will see uh, with the Holy Spirit as uh, the one in charge, uh, of course, just how far we get tonight. But my first point at any rate is this. Not sure what that noise was. Lives shaped by the gospel. Now come with me to verse 8. Paul says there, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. It wasn't simply that there was great preaching going on in Thessalonica and people heard that this was the place to go and to taste great sermons and to listen to Paul and others speaking. It was more than that. It was that great things were happening in people's lives in Thessalonica. It wasn't simply you must come to the meetings, 
that you must come to the gatherings. It was rather, you must hear about what's happened in the community. Indeed, haven't you already heard and seen what's been going on in that community? Lives, communities, families, churches, indeed whole cities were being transformed. We would say today, revival was going on. This was a great work of God taking place. The lives of the Thessalonians were doing all the preaching and all the talking. Paul would later say of the Corinthians, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Your lives show that the gospel you heard has has done something wonderful and transforming to you that people know about. There is a change afoot and it's being noised abroad. It's being published across various places. But it all began, you see, when they heard the gospel. It began because of the gospel. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power that we've thought about that brought about this change. What was it like, I wonder, to be in Thessalonica when the gospel of Jesus Christ was being preached. It wasn't, for those who were listening, some kind of suspended reality that they, they left the uh, normal hustle and bustle world of Thessalonica and came somewhere and sort of drifted off into the ether and heard something mysterious. It wasn't like that at all. Neither was it some aesthetic or or cultural interest in which they were engaged as, as academics or intellectuals. Neither was it some therapy to make them feel better and face life more cheerfully and be able to cope with life's challenges. The gospel of Jesus Christ turned everything upside down. It revolutionized their lives, their minds, their homes, their families, their attitudes, their thoughts, their work, their rest, their all. It was real. It had legs, we might say. It was powerful. It had traction. It got things moving. It got them moving. That's real Christianity. I can remember... Maybe some of you can. A time before you were a Christian. And occasionally I would have to go to church services. And in those days there would be some formal occasion or some school, Christmas or Easter assembly or something like that. Always very formal. Always very majestic. Rather dramatic. Quite beautiful in a rather somber way. And I used to think, These buildings, these men in these robes, this music, this magnificence, this great church or cathedral, shouldn't it have some lasting effect on the people who come? Shouldn't something happen when they go into this place to to change them, to to make them better, to to make them new, to ennoble them in some way, to, to, to change the way they live and think and act? But it never did. It never did to me either. 
People might say, oh, that was interesting, or that was a nice hymn, or even that was rather boring, and that was all they ever said. They would go out and they would carry on with life as if they'd really never been in that place at all. It had no effect on them. It had no effect on me either. But see how different this passage is. When Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus comes with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. It turns the world upside down. Often in history, church history, churches have reached points where they've thought to themselves, you know, we're not doing very much. We're not seeing much happening. Attendances are falling. People aren't coming like they used to. We need to up the, the drama a bit. We, we need something a little bit more theatrical. We need more visuals in the church. We need more, more paintings, I don't know, more statues, more stained glass. We need better music, whatever better music might be. It might be more ornate music, more classical music. It might be more contemporary music, more up-to-date music, more jazzed-up music. Uh, the music is the thing. The imagery is the thing. The building is the thing. Let's, let's, you've heard about this cathedral in Norwich that has a helter-skelter there now to bring people in. You've maybe read about that over the last few days. And this is the point. Human means to try and make the church and the worship and everything that churches do more, more appealing, more interesting, more engaging, they are bound to fail, ultimately. They may draw crowds in, they may, they may get people interested for a while in some way, but they're not going to achieve anything lasting. What achieves lasting results is only what we have here which is when the gospel, the word of God, the message of salvation, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit by those that God has called and sent with a message that leads to conviction and certainty and a sense of glory, the sense that Jacob had when he awoke from his sleep and said, surely God is in this place. And I knew it not. You know, I've mentioned when I was not yet a Christian, I would go to churches and nothing would happen. Nothing would happen. Fleeting moments of, oh, this is rather, rather nice. But nothing would happen substantial. But when you know the Lord, when the word of God comes in power, there are changes, aren't there? You're changed. You meet with God. He's real. He gets under your skin. He gets into your heart. He gets into your attitude. We see that here with these Thessalonians in verse 9. Or they themselves report, these people themselves who have been changed, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The fact that these Thessalonians had been so changed is now being spread all over the world. Everyone's talking about it. What's happened to them? They've turned from idols to the living and true God. What does that mean? Well, it means, of course, that they, they no longer go to the old pagan temples. They no longer go through the old pagan rites. It means that they have publicly confessed Christ as Lord. 
They've been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. It means all those things, but it means more than those things. And it must mean more, more than those things for us today as well. It means that the central motivation and orientation of their hearts and lives has been transformed. Their old attachments to sin and self and idols has been broken. You remember the people of Israel on Mount Carmel in the days of Elijah and how they saw what happened with the Baal worshippers, and how they danced and cut themselves for hours upon hours, and nothing happened. No one answered. No one listened. No one came and set that wood alight. And then how Elijah came at the end of the day and prayed that brief prayer, having asked that the altar be drenched with water. O Lord God of Abraham, Israel, uh, Isaac and Israel, Let these people know today that you are God and I am your prophet and that you have come to turn their hearts to you. And that's what happened when the fire came down. The people shouted, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And that happens to us. When a genuine work of God is going on, we say, you say, I say, the Lord, he is my God. The Lord, he is my saviour the Lord who calls me, the Lord who summons me, the Lord who says, give me your whole life, give me your whole heart, give me your whole mind, give me your hours, give me your minutes and seconds, give me your waking and your sleeping, give me your conduct, give me your conversation, give me your loyalties and attachments, give me your habits, give me your mealtimes, Give me your waking and sleeping, I've mentioned that already, and everything else. Give me your all. Didn't the early apostles know something about that? How changed they were, weren't they? Peter and James and John. So changed, so changed. The denying Peter, the arrogant Peter, the boastful Peter, the deluded Peter... The putting his foot in it, Peter, changed. Changed even though he's brought in front of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Charged by them not to say anything else in the name of Jesus. But he and the others say, you know, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There's a joyful spontaneity about it. The name of Jesus just overflows from their lips. They've got to tell people about who this Jesus is. It's instinctive. It comes from the heart. They just do it naturally. They want to do it. Now the Lord is the Spirit, says Paul, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You imagine going to this church in Thessalonica, dropping in there, stepping into a time machine, going back 2,000 years, go there for a Sunday morning. What was it like after the service? What was it like after the service? How long did the service go on? What happened afterwards? Did they button up their lips and uh, swallow any talk of the gospel? Did they discuss the weather? Did they talk about the sports results from the day before? Did the power and wonder of the gospel 
evaporate from their hearts and minds when they went home. No, surely not. These people knew their God. They wanted to talk about him. I rejoice that this morning, after the service was over, I had conversations with a number of people, and they were all gospel conversations. They were conversations about the Lord. That's what should be happening with us, isn't it? Praise be to God for that, that he guides us and leads us and moves us to talk about what is most precious to us because our lives have been changed. And there is nothing, there is nothing in your life that the Lord cannot visit and come to and take his hands and and, and take hold of and, and shape and form and mold and beautify. You might say, my life, my life is such a mess. My life is beyond help. No one knows the troubles that I've seen. No one knows the hardships I've experienced. Well, one does. Actually, in the church of Jesus Christ, we can help each other to speak of these things in the Lord from the Lord's perspective. Here are lives that are transformed by the gospel. I just want briefly to say one more thing tonight, and I won't take long. But there's a second thing we surely do see in this passage. And that is the hope that is generated by the gospel. And what we see here is the way that the hope of these believers not only exists, but even flourishes in the midst of suffering and trials. What is the ultimate test of the genuineness of Christian faith? How can we know if Christian faith is the real thing or whether it's a, a counterfeit, a fake, a phony, a made-up thing. The ultimate test is how Christian faith fares when put through the crucible of affliction. It's easy to say that we're Christians on a fine sunny day when there's not a cloud in the sky and the skies are blue and the sun is shining and the wind isn't blowing and we're just sitting in our gardens as it were, without a care in the world, and we say, oh, I'm so glad I'm a believer. I trust in the Lord. That's very easy to say, isn't it, when everything seems nice and calm. But what happens when the storm clouds of persecution or difficulty or suffering start to gather? Or what happens if a a professional crisis or a domestic trial shows up, and our, our, our short fuses and our discontented spirits are revealed for what they are. And we're just like the soil, the second type of soil where the seed falls, and there's joy for a little while, but there's no depth. And as soon as there's the slightest degree of bother and trouble and inconvenience, we just show that we're not believers at all. Well, this wasn't true of these Thessalonians. He says in verse 6 that they became imitators of us and of the Lord. And that's important. Imitators of Paul and Silas and the others. What happened to Paul and Silas? Well, 
Paul refers to this in chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, although we had been already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. And you know what happened in Philippi, don't you? They had been preaching and witnessing, but there had arisen a problem, a crisis, which ended up with Paul and Silas being thrown into prison. And there they were at midnight, in the innermost cell of that prison. And what would you do if you had been them? What would you have been thinking? What would you have been saying? Would you have been bemoaning your bad luck, this rotten thing that had happened to you? This is awful. I was expecting this. This has all gone wrong. We should never have come here. Bad mistake. They weren't doing that. They were singing hymns. They were singing praise to God in that prison cell in the darkness of midnight. And we know what happened, that the Lord intervened in a wonderful way. But they didn't know that the Lord was going to do that, did they? How could they do that? They could do that because they themselves were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were imitators of him. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who looks like Jesus, especially somebody who resembles Jesus in his sufferings. And no doubt Paul and Silas would have remembered the words that Jesus spoke the night before he died. John 16, 33. I was going to preach on these words a few weeks ago. Even last week it never came to it. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And they could look forward to the fact that at the end of all things, the Lord Jesus who has overcome the world will triumph in glory and so will all his people with him. This is what believers must anticipate. We can uh, read on in this first letter to the Thessalonians and see that in chapter 3, what it is that rejoices Paul's heart is the way that these believers are continuing faithful in suffering. Let me read from verse 4 to verse 8. This is an insight into what Paul's heart is really beating for, for these Thessalonians. He says, in fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told you, he has told us, that you always have pleasant memories of us, and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. It's a different translation I'm reading from here. It's an old sermon. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord. Now, what's Paul saying there as I draw to a close? What is it that makes Paul happy? What is it that makes Paul smile? What is it that makes Paul rejoice? What does he want to hear about these Thessalonians? 
But they're having a, a really lovely, easy time of it. No trouble, no opposition. Everyone's treating them well and kindly, and there's no harm and no danger. They're getting a great hearing, and they are just peaceably continuing through life. No, what he wants to hear is that they are standing fast in the Lord, even though they are being persecuted. For now we live, we really live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's not their circumstances that Paul is interested to know about in terms of where they are and what they're doing. No, rather, it's their faith. It's that they are standing firm through affliction. What's your affliction? What has been your affliction? What might be your affliction? But if you are a Christian and a child of God, then the Lord will enable you also to stand firm in that. Let me just close with the way in which this chapter, that is chapter 1, ends. Why is it that these believers could live the way they did? Verse 10 says that they were to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. A short distance away from Thessalonica was the famous Mount Olympus, home of the Olympic Games, the original Olympic Games, mythical home of the Greek gods. These famed gods like Zeus, the king of the gods, with all the power that he was meant to have. But what could these gods do for the people of Thessalonica? They could do nothing for them. They could do absolutely nothing for them. Why were they willing to endure persecution and shameful treatment? It's because they weren't waiting for Zeus or any other false god. It's because they were waiting for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What wrath is that? Not the wrath of man, but the wrath of God. And that's the final thought we have here. If you and I stand firm as a Christian, we will sooner or later incur the wrath of man. Human opposition, human anger, persecution, violence, all these sorts of things. But if we stand firm in Jesus Christ, though we may well face the wrath of man, we are delivered from the wrath of God. I tell you, says Jesus, do not fear those who kill the body, but having done that can do nothing against you. Rather, fear him who has the power to destroy body and soul in hell. And that is, as we thought this morning with Lot and his wife. His wife didn't make it, did she? But like Lot, flee from the wrath to come. And flee to Jesus Christ. We are delivered from God's wrath in Jesus Christ. 
so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And how greatly God has blessed me in his Son, Jesus Christ. We'll pray together. Our mighty and eternal God, you yourself have graciously called us to be your own people. We read, O Lord, of these things that happened in Thessalonica. We read of other great events in the days of the apostles and in days since. Some of us here have known wonderful times and seasons of rich blessing that you've blessed us with. O Lord our God, restore these times to us, we pray. May we know times of revival, times of awakening, times of deep personal encounter with you, times of your gracious dealings with our souls, times when we as a congregation are knit together in hearing your word with sublime joy, times when we are cut to the heart because your word is like an arrow or a double-edged sword that pierces and divides and is a judge of the motives and thoughts of all our hearts. O oh Lord, our God in heaven, we want you to change us. We want there to be these great works that you have done, repeated in our own day in this place. We want to see Camberwell being turned upside down. We want to see people from every background. We don't care what color their skin is or how much money they have or what education they have or how old or young they are or what language is their first language or anything of that kind. These are all very minor details. But we want, O oh Lord, people to come from everywhere who see that Jesus Christ is everything. He is Lord, he is Savior, he is the gospel, he is salvation. Oh, move us, O oh Lord, to work for and pray for and seek these wonderful ends, we ask in his name. Amen.